was a sunny day off the coast of San Diego. Congress had authorized what would become the Iraq War a few months earlier, in October 2002. The invasion had begun in March 2003. On May 1st, President Bush had landed on the USS Abraham Lincoln in the co-pilot seat of a Navy fighter jet. After landing, Bush changed out of his combat flight suit and stepped up to the podium, surrounded by a crowd as receptive as the one in Dallas last week. Having marched U.S. troops through Iraq and deposed of Saddam Hussein's regime and his statue, Bush called Operation Iraqi Freedom a job well done. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended, Bush said the infamous Mission Accomplished banner hovering over him. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. At the time, the theatrics seemed effective in the eyes of U.S. News. Democrats were disappointed, as Ken Walsh wrote, that the photo op went so smoothly. U.S. News and World Report, May 1st. 2013. That is a report from the U.S. and World Report that was published about eight years ago, a report on an event that took place a couple of decades ago. The event was an iconic part of the Iraq War. The elaborate photo op was orchestrated in order to portray a sense of victory in the war albeit while carefully avoiding using words like victory. The event has not just been remembered for the carefully coordinated pageantry of the day, but particularly for how quickly and devastatingly it was shown to be hollow. No sooner was it over than a number of things happened that made it clear that the war in Iraq was anything but over. In fact, it was about to get a whole lot worse. Now, I realize that many of you are wondering whether you have really tuned into the Retelling the Bible podcast at this point, because this is not how I usually start my episodes. I usually start by reading a portion of the scripture that I'm basing my story on but I am trying something a little bit different this episode. I do have a Bible story to tell you today, or at least a story behind a Bible story. It's even a Christmas story. But I want to illustrate how that could have happened by looking at what happened to the story of George W. Bush's photo op on that aircraft carrier. As I said, it became an iconic event that illustrated a lot of what people saw wrong in the Iraq War. And events like that have a way of entering into popular culture. The story became so familiar that all you need to do is make a few short references. Use phrases like, President in a flight suit end of major combat operations and mission accomplished, 
and everyone is able to conjure up a picture of what happened on that day. But when something happens like that, when references to an event become a sort of cultural shorthand, you can do fun things with that. For example, imagine if today, right now, the Bible were being written. And imagine if in that new Bible, a story were told, a story in which a world leader landed on an aircraft carrier wearing a flight suit and stood under a mission accomplished banner and declared the end of major combat operations. Any contemporary reader would immediately understand what a story was making reference to, wouldn't they? And they would probably immediately understand that the story was meant to criticize things like hollow photo ops, or perhaps make a comment on contemporary politics. But what if that story were then read by people 2,000 years in the future? Would those future readers miss those references? And if they did, would they be able to completely understand what the story was trying to say? This is an important question because there is a story in the Gospel of Matthew, part of the Christmas story, that does almost exactly that. It appears to have elements that refer to a well-known event that took place about 20 years before the Gospel of Matthew was written. And I believe that the author of the Gospel was trying to say something important by including those elements. But, in order to understand what he was saying, you need to hear that story. It is one of the historical events that stands behind Matthew's story of Christmas and I would like to tell the story of it to you. This is Retelling the Bible. Special Christmas Episode 2 The Other Journey of the Other Magi In the 819th year after the foundation of Rome, a year that the Christians would eventually decide, probably incorrectly, was about 66 years after the birth of their Lord, the Emperor Nero had a big problem. Rome had been at war with an empire far to the east for about as long as anyone could remember. The enemy were the Parthians, who ruled a far-off territory that would someday be part of the countries known as Iraq and Iran. But, like great empires sometimes do, Rome and Parthia had long avoided clashing directly with each other. Instead, they had been fighting a kind of proxy war 
for a territory that lay on the border between the two of them, the kingdom of Armenia. And Nero's problem was that the war with Armenia had not been going well at all. In fact, he had kind of made a mess of it. And people were starting to notice. How bad was it going? Well, for years, Rome had been flexing its power in Armenia by choosing which king would rule over it. Always choosing one that would favor Roman interests, of course. But recently, Rome's armies had done so badly that they'd been forced to conclude a new peace treaty with Parthia. And the terms were downright insulting. From now on, it would be the king of Parthia who would pick Armenia's ruler. And he had chosen to place his own brother, Tiridates, on the throne. The only concession Rome had been able to win in the treaty negotiations was almost completely meaningless. The king of Parthia might choose the monarch, but the Roman emperor would retain the right to actually place the crown on the man's head. Emperor Nero, as these events should probably make clear, was not particularly good at governing. But when it came to something else, he had a natural talent. He knew how to keep the populace of Rome happy and occupied. He was a master of showmanship, of games and spectacles. If anybody could turn the disaster of the treaty with Parthia into a win, it was going to be Nero. And so this is what Nero did. He accepted that the brother of the king of Parthia would sit on the throne of Armenia. But he insisted that he would exercise his right to crown the new king in the way that suited him. There would be no sending of imperial envoys to Armenia to do the job there. Oh no, it must be done by Nero's own hand. But here was the thing. Nero was a very busy man. He had the whole world to run, after all. Did he mention that he was the ruler of the whole world? And so, if Tiridates wanted to be king, he would have to come to Rome, and he would have to bend the knee before the emperor and pay him homage as the great ruler of the whole world. Only then would Nero place the crown on his head. Only then would he be a real king. When Tiridates I, youngest brother of the king of Parthia, 
and the one who had been designated by his brother to rule over Armenia, received the message from Rome. We do not know how he felt about it. Was he angry that Nero was putting him through all of this just so that he could symbolically receive the crown that was already his in every way that mattered? Perhaps. But whatever he felt, Tiridates was obviously a good politician, and he quickly resolved that he would do whatever was required of him. But in addition to being a politician, he was also a priest, a priest of the ancient Persian religion known as Zoroastrianism. And so he decided that if he was going to have to go all the way to Rome, he would do it not only as a king, but also as a representative of his religion. They would make a procession through all the Roman Empire to get there, and it would be one that no one would soon forget. He would take with him not only his wife and children and two of his brothers, but also an escort of 3,000 Parthian horsemen, the best horsemen in the world. He would bring many Armenian and Roman nobles as well, but most important of all, he would bring with him several fellow Zoroastrian priests all decked out in full regalia. He knew that that would impress the Romans more than anything else, for they held a fascination for such priests, who were popularly known as Magi. And so the procession of the Magi from the East, as it came to be known, set out to seek the great king of all the world. Tiridates and his marvelous train of followers took the long overland journey. They passed from Armenia to Asia province, crossed the Bosphorus into Thrace, and then Illyria, before finally entering the Italian peninsula through Picenum. And everywhere they went, huge crowds turned out to see them. They marveled at the horsemen and the gorgeous costumes. But most of all, they wanted to catch a glimpse of the mysterious Magi, whom they all regarded with a mix of fascination and fear. After nine months of traveling, all funded, by the way, by the Roman treasury, Tiridates finally arrived in Rome. It seemed as if the whole empire was in a frenzy. I don't know if they called it Magi Mania, but they could have.
the Magi finally entered into the sacred city of Rome. Historian Cassius Dio says that the city was profusely decorated with flags, torches, garlands and bunting, and gorgeously illuminated at night. Great crowds of people were everywhere, for who would miss such a day? Nero was decked out as a triumphant general. He sat on his glittering throne, and when the Magi approached, and Tiridates knelt before him and paid him homage, it was as if the whole city was holding its breath. And then, when the Emperor gently placed the diadem upon his head and raised up the new king of Armenia, they all gasped at once and then let out a great cry. When it comes to magnitude and splendor, it is said that there has been no greater reception recorded in the history of Rome. It was called the Golden Day. And when the visit was over, and the Magi had left for home, taking, of course, another more direct route, Nero did something extraordinary. He ordered that the doors of the Temple of Janus be closed. There was probably not a person alive in Rome who remembered the last time such a thing had happened. For it was something that was only permitted when the Empire was at peace. By closing those doors, the Emperor was making a very public pronouncement that by signing this peace accord with Parthia, he had brought peace on earth, goodwill to all people. People long remembered that day and the visit of the Magi. They spoke of it often but they did not do so only because of the splendor and pageantry of the day. They did so because of how quickly it was exposed as a particularly hollow celebration. The peace with Parthia did not hold. They broke the terms almost immediately with new incursions. The doors of the Temple of Janus were soon open again, and legionaries were on the move. The memory of that day became a symbol of the limitations of imperial power and spectacle. Even years later, a satirist or a critic only needed to drop a few phrases into a story. Phrases like, Magi from the East, paid him homage, and returned home by another route in order to evoke the whole embarrassing story. Oh, and a few references to gold didn't hurt, too.
Most scholars today think that the Gospel of Matthew was written sometime after the year 80 CE. That is to say, maybe it was written a couple of decades after the famous visit of the Magi to the Emperor Nero. And at the beginning of his Gospel, Matthew included a story of some wise men, Magi, from the East, who came to visit the recently born Jesus, knelt and paid homage to him, hailing him as a king, and who then returned home by another road. Isn't it a kind of amazing coincidence that Matthew's story contains so many echoes of that infamous event that had taken place a couple of decades before? Now, we really have no idea how much information Matthew may have had about any actual visit of Magi to the home of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. I am sure that he did use traditions of the early church, as well as many passages from the Old Testament, when he wrote his account of the birth of Jesus. But, I'm also pretty sure that when he told his story of the visit of the Magi, he went out of his way to tell the story in a way that reminded many people of the famous story of the time that a bunch of Magi came to Rome. But why would Matthew do something like that? Make a reference to what we would consider a purely political and secular event in his account of the most divine of events, the coming of the Messiah into the world. Well, the fact of the matter is that the visit of the Magi to Nero wasn't just a political event. Emperor Nero was not just a political leader. He was also a god. And the whole spectacle of the Magi the priests of a foreign god, bowing down before him, had as much to do with him flaunting his divinity as it did with him exercising his illusory imperial power. I think that Matthew would have been only too happy to remind his readers of Nero's mission-accomplished event because it may have looked pretty impressive on the outside, but it was soon shown to be completely empty. And Matthew? Well, he knew of another king, one that maybe didn't look so impressive on the outside, one who was, in fact, rejected by the powerful and the important of this world. But, when it came to substance and power that really mattered, and when it came to a vision of the world as God had always intended that it should be, Matthew would take that king any time. So, Matthew told the story of the visit of the Magi to the child Jesus in such a way as to make it clear how different his king, Jesus, 
really was. To make it clear that Jesus was not about appearance and photo ops, but about changing the world in substantial ways. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Subscribe and do come back next week because I have just one more Christmas story for you as our season closer. The theme music for this podcast is Ah Da. The mood music for this episode is Ancient Mystery Waltz. The music is by Kevin McLeod, is licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>